Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Teresa, for leading us in a powerful song there, and Crystal, and I, I got some stuff going on with my head, and uh, I guess there's always stuff going on in my head, but today I've got some stuff going on on my head, and maybe the lights are being kind, but in case some of you, especially those of you who are sitting behind me, uh, if you look at my head up close, it, I've got a disease, okay? Leprosy. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, but having blue eyes and the whitest skin that you'll ever encounter, uh, I pay a lot of money to a friendly dermatologist. And every six months, he loves to attack me with dry ice and freeze things off my head. But every other year, he does a chemical burn. And seemingly, this is good for my skin and my precancerous keratosis. So my head is beginning to look a little bit like a ripe, bright plum. Personally, I prefer to call it a, like a term of, it's a sophisticated burgundy color. That's what it is, okay? But as it, it's also about to get worse because it's about to itch, okay? And like, and like yawning, if I start to scratch my head as I preach, you're going to want to do the same, okay? Oh, there's nothing like a good scratch, okay? Uh, so, uh, so I have decided to cover it up for the duration of my preach so as to not distract. So, let me uh, put on a hat here, okay? There we go. Eh? I think, there we go. I think, did somebody say Irishman there? I know. So, uh, so uh, I hope this doesn't, I hope this doesn't distract you anyway or shape or form. And you can still take me seriously for the next know, 35 minutes, okay? Uh, this is my See You Jimmy hat, okay? So everybody in Glasgow, biggest city in Scotland, is called Jimmy. And so, hey, you know, so you call it, hey, Jimmy hat, or a See, a see You Jimmy hat. So uh, uh, just, just to keep you from looking at my scabby head, okay, I thought I'd put the hat on. So, uh, hey, best of luck. Okay, so uh, I think... I think I've never got to take this off, actually. I don't, I don't think you guys can cope with it, okay? I don't know if I could preach with it on either. But uh, I think one of the defining moments in any dating relationship is the first time you see the other person without makeup. <laughs> I, I think makeup is really facial deception. When you think about it, you know, makeup is designed to deceive the other person. It's to make your eyes look bigger, your, your lips look fuller, your nose to look nosier, you know? Uh, it's to hide the blemishes and the flaws and such. Uh, I, can, I can still remember this, okay? Uh, just, just, just jeans on and an old ratty sweatshirt and no glasses, uh, hair was everywhere, uh, not a speck of makeup, no, no lipstick, no blush, no foundation, no mascara, nothing. And neither did my wife, Okay. And, uh, but, you know, when we saw it, it just fell in love, you know, with the real one. And when you peel off all the makeup, you find the real person. You find the real person. This morning, 
I want us to find the real person, one of the people at the center of the Christmas story, the real Mary. You see, we've put makeup on Mary, and if we haven't put makeup on, we've covered her up. Uh, if you were to visit most Catholic churches, you'll find a rather somber-faced statue of Mary, maybe draped in like a Carolina blue robe and often emotionless. Think of Mary, and you probably have an image of some mythical virgin mother of medieval piety. The church has put makeup on her. The church has tried to hide her. Certainly, uh, the Catholic Church has applied the most makeup and is made up of ideas and beliefs such as, for instance, it would teach what's known as perpetual virginity. They would teach that Mary had no union with Joseph even after she gave birth to Jesus. She was perpetually a virgin. Or they would teach about her sinlessness she was impeccable, not by the essential perfection of her nature, but by a special divine privilege. Or they would use the term, she is the mother of God. And not that she existed before God and gave birth to God, but she's the one who carried God in her womb. And uh, there's a truth in that one that we can buy into, but the term maybe implies more than what it really is. And these were the early beliefs that developed in the early church. But then they began to apply more makeup to Mary. And they'd apply things like immaculate conception, where there was this supernatural preservation of Mary from sin from the moment of her conception in her mother's womb. Or they would call her the, the second Eve, so, uh, flowing out of her sinlessness, if Eve disobeyed, so Mary obeyed, and in her obeying, it has remade others. Or they talk about her glorious assumption, because Catholics believe that Mary was immaculately conceived and therefore sinless, therefore Mary didn't die. She was assumed into heaven like Enoch, like Elijah, like Jesus. Or there's also the thought of the mediatrix, where you would pray to Mary, and Mary would intercede for us before her all-holy Son. Now, please, uh, hear me carefully. This is not an anti-Catholic message, okay? I have just as much issue with evangelicals as I have with Catholics some days, okay? Some of my good friends are in the Catholic tradition. Uh, I've had two outstanding Catholic scholars who have taught me, and the scholar who most helped me in my postgrad studies, I, I, I used to have an eccentric 78-year-old French beret-wearing professor, but outside of him, there was a scholar by the name of Raymond Brown, and he is an eminent, eminent New Testament scholar who penned a, a seminal New Testament commentary on the Gospel of John, and boy, has that helped me in my studies. But if your tradition or your family's traditions has been the Catholic tradition, then you will know a lot of what I'm about to speak about. And while time doesn't permit, and nor do I see it as helpful to take 
all the beliefs of the Catholic tradition teach and unpack them and dissect them. My quest this morning is to try and find the real Mary outside the theological makeup and disagreements. And for those of you who have grown up in the Protestant church, especially in the evangelical arm, you've often just limited Mary to the Christmas story, and then she's locked away and forgotten. Or you've written her out of the story entirely. And Protestants probably have spent more time arguing against the developments of Mary in the Catholic Church or the Orthodox tradition, rather than create a solid understanding of who she was. So, who is the real Mary? And I want to peel off the makeup and help us see something of the real Mary, because she was a very real person. And she is designed to speak to our faith. She's in the Scriptures, and we believe the Bible, and we need to believe what this Bible says about Mary. And this real Mary is outstanding. And this Mary who has an extraordinary vocation, she learns to follow this Messiah, Jesus, through the ordinary struggles that humans face. And in so doing, Mary represents each of us in our vocations as we seek to follow the same Messiah. So this morning, lay aside the Carolina blue image you have of a Mary statue that often are within our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Traditions Church, and learn something from the real Mary today, who maybe looks more like this. Let me start by introducing you to a Hebrew word, sota. It means adulteress. Uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Moses, in the law of Moses, in Numbers chapter 5, the suspected adulteress, the sota, ha, needs to be brought before the priest. And the suspected adulteress is required to let her hair hang down. And under oath, she's asked to drink the bitter waters. And the bitter waters is a mixture of dust and holy water and the ink of the priest's written curse. And the suspected adulteress, the aspectus sota, would drink the bitter waters. And if she became sick, then she was guilty of adultery. And the punishment? She was stoned to death. And if she wasn't sick, she was acquitted. It's the law of the bitter waters. Mary had seen other women sitting at the gates, suspected adulteresses. Their clothes were torn, exposing their breast. Hair was let down, jewelry was all removed, and passerbys, especially women, were encouraged to stare at them. Public shaming. 
And now this teenage unwed girl was pregnant, and she knew it. This was the real world of Mary. She knew the law. She knew how the law did not favor women. She knew this plan by God for her to be pregnant and not married risked her being labeled sota, risked her being subject to the law of bitter waters. It was going to be difficult for Mary to explain how she'd gotten pregnant. Would Joseph, her espoused husband-to-be, would he be jealous? Would he be suspicious? Could he, could he drag her to the temple and ask the priest for the bitter waters test? And even if he didn't do it, what about the pressure from his family or his friends to say, you've got to find out, man. Take her to the temple. You see, two quite remarkable, unexplainable things were happening. Number one, God was inside the womb of an unwed, pregnant teenage girl. Come on! God was inside the womb of an unwed peasant girl. And secondly, the way this has happened was what the church calls a virgin birth. A birth unlike any other birth. God's powerful Spirit, the same Spirit who brooded over the waters on earth's opening day, would brood over Mary and create a miracle in her womb. A child conceived without a man. A virginal conception. Listen to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 26, as, as this story is told us in Holy Scriptures. Uh, listen into this narrative, and don't just hear it as like history of the Christmas story, but try to think through this actually happened. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled by his words and began to wonder about the meaning of this greeting. So the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. <laughs> you can't make that up, folks. Sources suggest that Mary was about 13 years old. Anybody here 13 years old? Not, not act 13, but actually are 13, you know? Some might suggest she was 16, doesn't really matter, but she's a teenager. 
And the angel Gabriel comes and startles her. I mean, was she in her room praying, or was she in her room watching the fourth series of Riverdale, or, or Brooklyn and Bailey's latest vlog? I don't know what she was doing. It's what's called an annunciation. And two people in the Christmas story receive an annunciation. There's Mary, but there's also Zechariah earlier in chapter one. And what an annunciation! And what a response. There was the surprise of an angel speaking to her. Like, 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 that doesn't happen very often in Subway to me, you know? Then there was the surprise that she was going to have a son. And then there was the surprise that this son would not just be any son. He would be the son of the Most High, the Davidic King of Israel, the long-awaited-for Messiah. The surprise, Mary, you will conceive miraculously. But the biggest surprise was still to come. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 38, the most astonishing, surprising words, Mary says, May it be. May it be. And as one writer puts it, when Mary whispered, may it be, the inner seams of Mary's life were ripped apart. Because Mary knew the word sota. And Mary knew the law of the bitter waters. And Mary knew the word mamzer. Let me tell you about that word as well. It's also a Hebrew word. Mamzer is the Hebrew word for an illegitimate child. She knew what her son was going to experience in the neighborhood from other kids at school and from other mothers. An illegitimate child has stigma. An illegitimate child doesn't fully belong. An illegitimate kid gets those looks, hears those taunts, is given those names. And Mary knew what she was inviting upon her illegitimate child. Let me tell you one more thing, one more word. For all that Mary knew about Sota, and all that Mary knew about Mamzer, she knew one more word. It's the other Hebrew word, Anawim. I was telling Tim Brown, I was speaking on Mary, and he shared with me some insightful comments that he had taught one Christmas about Mary and this word, Anawim. Thank you, Tim. It's a Hebrew word, and it means the poor ones, the pious or the faithful poor. If you look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, you will meet two other characters, Simeon and Anna. And these two people, it says in Luke chapter 2, they hung around the temple in Jerusalem. They, they spent most of their time there. Simeon was waiting for the comfort of Israel. Anna was a widow, and she had been widowed for many years. And the text says she never left the temple. She worshipped there day and night, day and night. And for Israelites, the temple was so symbolic, so central in their worship. But these two people, they are part of the Christmas narrative. Where they're always at the temple as they wait for God to act, God to save, God to restore. And they wait eagerly for God because they've got no one else. And they can't make it on their own. They were the Anawims. 
They were the financially deprived, the poor, the lonely, the sick, the disabled. They could not make it on their own, and they needed, they relied, they had put all their hope for life in the hands of God, somehow intervening, somehow helping. Mary was from this group. Mary was one of the Anoim. We will see why when we can say, why we read that. When we, if you were to look at the prayer, Mary's magnified cat, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later, later, later on. But, for, but for, for Mary, she faced death more than life. Like when she woke up in the morning, how would she survive was her thought. Not what great things can I do today. How do I live? For her, she seems to be alone. She's a young teenage girl with nobody. We never read of her parents, neither in Scripture nor in the writings of antiquity. They must have died. She was an orphan with only a relative and maybe a cousin, Elizabeth. And we don't even know if Elizabeth really was her cousin. Mary knew. Mary lived. Mary cried. Mary was Anawim. Her only hope? Find a husband. And she had. She found a good man, Joseph, a man who would save her, a man who would provide for her, a man who would pull her out of this group of hopelessness for maybe the first time in her life. Things are looking up. She's engaged. She's going to get married. She'll no longer be Anawim until this moment, this moment which interrupts and disrupts, even threatens everything. She's now pregnant, and it wasn't with her husband-to-be, and everything was now on the line. The door out could now be slammed closed in her face when Joseph finds out. Now can you feel the emotion? Now can you see the real Mary? Now can you grasp the drama and the angst and the gravity of what is happening? And at this moment, this divine moment, Mary opens her lips and she utters this astounding comment. May it be. May it be. Thank God for Mary. Thank God for a teenager who had more faith and more trust than I will ever have. Thank God for Mary who had more courage, more belief in her God than I and maybe you will ever have. Thank God for a girl whose heart and soul and strength and mind were outstandingly, indelibly set on following the God that she sang about, that she heard about, that she confessed. And talk about singing or confessing. A few days after she declares these words, may it be, Mary speaks, Mary sings, Mary pronounces what is called Mary's Magnificat. It's her hymn of praise. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, if you go down to verse 46, my soul extols the Lord and my spirit has begun to rejoice in God my Savior because He's looked upon the humble state of a servant from now on, oh, and so on and so on. In the 1980s, the government of Guatemala 
banned, outlawed, any public reading of Mary's Magnificat because it was deemed politically subversive. It gets its name, the Magnificat, after the first word of the first line in Latin, Magnificat Animia Mia Dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. <laughs> this would be another preach all on its own, but stay with me for a few more minutes, okay? America has always puzzled me. I, ar I arrived to these shores in 2001 from across the pond. And some of my closest friends when I arrived were a black South African family. Vincent was an outstanding pastor. And he was studying with me, and he and his three young boys and his amazing wife lived in the same apartments as us. And what a man of God he was. He was being courted by some of the biggest black church pulpits in the Midwest and being offered crazy money to be their senior pastor. And I tell you, I've got stories about this one. Big black churches look after their pastors well. The best cars, the best suits, the best house. But Vincent would say no. And he'd return to Johannesburg, but not to the big, bright, nice parts of Johannesburg, but to Soweto, the troubled township, the slum. He's an incredible man, incredible man. And as I walked with Vincent and sat with Vincent and ate with Vincent and talked with Vincent, I remembered being gripped by this stunning realization not that long before, in the history of this country, I could not have walked with Vincent. He and his family would not have lived in the same apartment block as me. And only after the Brown Two Act would my boys and Vincent's boys attend school together. I've not known segregation. But when I speak to friends who have, the pain, the injustice, the travesty. And to use the Bible and the name of Jesus to justify it maybe creates the most hurt to those of us who follow this same Jesus. But in 1959, a song began to be sung. And it had been written earlier and sung earlier, possibly dating back to antebellum days. But it really began to be sung by Guy Carawan. And a song that would eventually become the unofficial anthem of the civil rights movement. And as the civil rights movement took root in high schools and in colleges, African-American students facing discipline facing being barred from sitting their exams, facing not graduating as they protested, would together with one voice begin to sing these confident words, the song that Guy Caravan wrote and sang, we shall overcome. 
We shall walk hand in hand. We shall all be free. We are not afraid. We are not alone. The whole wide world around, we shall overcome. Mary's Magnificat was that kind of song. Don't miss it. And it wasn't sung by masses of students led by churchmen and politicians. It was sung by a lonely, single teenage girl. Thomas Cahill, the historian, says it's the most muscular poem in all of ancient literature. Herod is on the throne. He's a pretend king. He's weak. He's a coward. He's fearing for his power. He's ruthless. He's bitter. He's a narcissist. He is overtaxing the people so he would be rich and important. If you oppose him, you will be killed. John the Baptist had his head chopped off. He spoke and people trembled. And behind him was the violent, never opposed in the mighty Roman army and an emperor who set himself up to be a god. He spoke and his will was done. His kingdom was come and he was going to rule and reign it and he would crush anyone who tried to interfere with his kingdom. And in that climate, in that world, Mary sings, Mary speaks. Listen to some of the words. God's mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. People, 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 do not just think that Mary has personal piety. Mary was a tiger waiting to pounce for God. Mary was a powerful woman of faith who longed for the day when Herod would meet his just end and God would appoint the true Davidic king of Israel. Mary was a strong, strong woman who longed for the day when Rome would fall and God's kingdom would come and people would march not to the beat of a Roman drummer, but to the beat of a different drum. And when God broke the news to her through the angel Gabriel that her son would become the true Davidic king, that her godchild would be the particular hope that she and many others longed for, Mary must have asked God, what took you so long? Mary's song, Mary's vision was a revolutionary, dangerous faith-filled, radical, stunning proclamation of Herod being dethroned and Jesus being enthroned. This was rebellion. This was messianic. This was, this is the gospel. Oh, Mary, did you know? Dying right she knew. She knew who was in her. She knew her God. She knew what that God was asking of her. She knew. 
And this is what her history, her people's history, the history of every downtrodden, poor, lonely, ignored, devalued, forgotten, every Anawim, every Sota, every Manzer, every sinner trying to know hope and life and love, they, we long for this. Oh, Mary, she knew. Listen, ladies. Listen, girls. Listen, boys who hope to date girls. <laughs> nice girls don't change the world. Mary was muscular. Mary was not nice. If nice is meek and mild and stay in your lane and don't overstep and don't get involved and stay at home and have some babies. Mary was the first voice behind the Gospels that we now read. This made Mary a dangerous woman. And maybe this country needs a revival, and maybe our world needs a fresh wave of the Holy Spirit to fall upon it, but for this I'm sure, where are the Marys of today? Here was a teenage girl, and she was revolutionary. She challenged the status quo. She spoke out against the corruption and the evil and the injustice. Where are our young people? Where are our young voices? Where are our young Marys and our young Luthers and Calvins and our young Benedicts and our young Catherines? Kierkegaard once said, this generation will die not of sin, but this generation will die of apathy. Dorian, Joel, our youth interns, challenge the young to be Marys. Call them to action, to be prophetic, to be courageous, to be voices that will be raised Voices raised with characters that match and speak in to our today's issues, issues of equality at gender levels, at income levels, at health levels, issues of racism, issues of immigration, issues of creation care, issues of biblical ontology, issues of Muslim-Christian relationships, issues of global economics, the list could go on, and the list will always be about engaging culture We'll speak about politics and corruption and economics. It will speak the message of Jesus because Jesus has a lot to say about these issues. And no longer should the young people be silent about these issues, but speak out about these issues. But speak about these issues as people who follow the name of Jesus, the Messiah who came, and the one whose kingdom has come and is coming. Do not be intimidated by the voices that are louder and more liberal but stand on the truth of the God that you believe in and speak it. Most of all, speak the hope and the promise that a child who was born to a young Mary came, and what he came to do, he's delivering on. Call him to talk about Christ, to show Christ, to be his hands and his feet. 
And not to do it the way that my generation did it, because my generation did it wrong. My generation's voice was a voice of condemnation, a voice of anger, a voice of hate. And we did it in the name of Jesus. And that's why millions have walked away from the church. You do it with the voice of a Mary, with courage, with boldness, with character, with an understanding of who this God is and a belief deep in your soul about the faith you confess. Mary is not to be worshipped. Mary is to be emulated. Mary is to challenge us, inspire us, call us, whether young or old, whether male and an insider or female and an outsider, whether rich and privileged or poor and forgotten. Mary is the challenge that we all must face. Mary is the muscle that we all should develop. So, this Christmas, this December 8, 2019, Mary says to us all, you think you can't? Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can if you say you believe the God who revealed himself to me through the angel Gabriel. So, Mary, Mary, not the image of a Carolina blue statue in some church, but the bold, real, courageous Mary, she comes to us this morning and she says, this is the God that I believe. May it be. And you say you believe the same God? May it be. And may your actions portray that belief. What a woman. What a girl. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, as we stand, we're stabbed in our hearts because here a young peasant teenage girl has shown us what faith should lead to. And she has trust and faith and courage that we sing about so often in our lives we don't portray. And yet, we don't feel condemned, God. We just feel challenged. Forgive us our lack of belief in who you are, because that's what it comes to, God. We say we believe who you are, but so often we dilute it and pollute it. May this Christmas, may something of Mary's courage and trust and hope and belief permeate our beings and cause us to live the life we're meant to. And may we with willingness say, God, may it be. May it be.
Christ's name we pray. Amen. See you next Sunday.